Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Micah 5, 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when, he, when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can grab a seat. Can we thank our uh, kids' choir once again for leading us? Amen. That was awesome. You have made a joyful noise. Uh, you have told it from the mountaintops that Christ is born. So thanks for worshiping with us today. If you are in Kingdom Kids, you can go ahead and be dismissed at this time. If you're in preschool, you can meet the teachers over here on this side of the room. If you are in K-1 through or elementary, you can come on over to this side. Um, just a few directives, by the way. Welcome those of you who are new this morning. So glad that you're here. Uh, we've got a connection room over here with some coffee, clipboards for the kids, some restrooms on this side, a cry room in the back of this room, and a nursing mom's room on this side. So if any of that would serve you well throughout the service, please uh, feel free uh, to utilize those. Uh, but good morning once again. Uh, my name is Ian. If I've had the chance to meet you, I have the honor and privilege of being one of our pastors here and excited to open up God's Word and continue our Advent series, uh, The Humble Kingdom, this morning, looking at this uh, passage in Micah chapter 5. Now, this passage in Micah 5 is uh, a prophecy written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and uh, this prophecy is specifically related to his place of birth and the location of Bethlehem. And that got me uh, thinking a little bit this week about hometowns. Uh, I've learned over the years, as I've lived in Florida now uh, for coming up on almost 20 years, uh, I've learned that very few people are actually born in Florida, right? Any native Floridians here in the room? There you are, loud and proud in the back. Awesome. Uh, maybe 50-50 in the room, okay? Um, but if you're a Florida native, uh, I think you're finding more and more you're in the minority, aren't you? Uh, the latest studies are showing that Polk County specifically is uh, the fastest growing county in Florida. Uh, that feels right if you've tried to drive on South Florida Avenue at any point in time in the last year. Uh, save your road diet takes for later. Uh, Polk County is the fourth fastest growing county in the nation. Uh, so there are people moving here who are not from here all of the time. 
And here's the thing about our hometowns that I want us to appreciate. The place where we were born, or the place that we grew up, uh, it shapes a good amount of our life, doesn't it? I mean, the location of the place you were born sets the trajectory for a lot of things. Uh, from the language that you speak, to the food that you eat, the sports teams that you grow up loving and the sports teams you grow up despising, uh, maybe the political leanings you might have, what you consider to be cold or warm weather, right? Anybody wearing shorts and a t-shirt today, right? We know you're not from here. Uh, all of that depends on your hometown. I was born in a very small town in Michigan, moved here to Lakeland, and I remember it took me about six months to uh, figure out what people were talking about whenever we would go to restaurants and we'd order drinks, and there's, you know, the sugary, fizzy drink, it's of a dark color, and uh, up north we called that pop, right, or soda pop, okay? Uh, down here, everything's Coke, right? So we'd sit down to eat, what do you want to drink? Do you want a Coke? And I'd say, yes, and they're like, great, which one? I'm like, do they think diet, cherry? Like, how complicated is this, right? It's a language thing, it's where you're from. And even if you moved around a lot and not sure where home is, so to speak, uh, this also has a profound impact on you. Well, Micah chapter 5 is going to tell us that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And as we're going to see, Bethlehem is a humble, small, insignificant town on the grand scheme of the world stage. But I want us to appreciate today as we continue our Advent series focusing on humility uh, that the humble place of Bethlehem is not just a physical reality, it's also an invitation for us to take up the humble place in our own lives and in our own souls before the mighty God of the universe. And it is in that humble place and only in that humble place that we will rightly see the greatness and the glory of Jesus, the King who has come and the King that has promised to come again. So this morning in these verses, here's what we're going to see is our main idea. Jesus is the promised king, born in humility, who will shepherd us into security and peace. Jesus is the promised king, born in humility, who will shepherd us into security and peace. Before we dive in, would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you this morning for the chance to gather as your people, as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and even as we uh, heard uh, the children up here uh, proclaiming, uh, God, we've come to remember the good news of Christ. We've come to remember that you have come, that you have entered into our broken world as a light shining in the darkness, and you have promised to come again and to make all things new. So as we await your second advent, May you stir us up to greater worship of you, greater gratitude for what you have done for us, and may we be a faithful witness to that glorious good news. I pray now as we open up your word that you, Holy Spirit, would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond in a fresh way to the good news of Christ. In your kindness, lead us to repentance and faith, and may we be drawn to the humble place as we see your greatness and your glory. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we work through uh, Micah 5, we're going to see three kind of movements today. We're going to look at the promise of a ruler, then we're going to take a little detour into Matthew chapter 2 and talk about a tale of two kings, then we're going to come back to Micah and talk about the results of the reign of King Jesus. Let's begin with the promise of a ruler. The context here is uh, dealing in the book of Micah. Micah is a, pr a prophet who was around sometime in the 7th to 8th century B.C., he was a contemporary of Isaiah. We've looked at Isaiah in this series if you've been with us. 
And just like we saw in Isaiah 9, the Assyrians were the dominant superpower of the day. And they were the primary enemy of the people of Israel. They had already conquered the northern kingdom. And they were now closing in on the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. The situation is not looking good. And the prophet Micah has been warning the people over and over again, like the prophets did throughout the Old Testament, that this was a sign of divine judgment, since they have continued to neglect their covenant relationship and responsibilities to the Lord that has chosen them by his grace to be his people. In our passage today, there's actually a message of hope, but Micah begins with a warning that things will get worse before they get better. That's the context for verse 1. The Lord says through Micah, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The language here is telling the people to prepare for warfare. Micah has given a picture here in the preceding chapter of tons of troops and enemies surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And so they need to gather themselves up. They need to get organized in order to defend against the siege that is impending. But Micah tells us that this is ultimately going to be futile. He describes that attack on the judge of Israel, presumably the king, probably speaking here of King Hezekiah. Now the king is the leader of the people. He is the symbol of hope and strength and defense, but here it says with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, I don't think this is meant to inflict physical pain, though no one likes getting hit in the face. This is meant to be like we treat a slap in the face today. It's meant to be embarrassing. It's meant to make a mockery of someone. It's meant to be publicly humiliating. So here are the people of Israel, Assyria closing in, and Micah's recounting that this king is going to be publicly humiliated and made nothing of by this enemy. The picture here is a people surrounded, a king shamed, and the situation hopeless. So the people of Israel no doubt are wondering, is God here? Does he care? What about his promises to us? Are we doomed? And then comes the glorious verse of Micah 5.2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's a stark contrast between verse 1 and verse 2, isn't it? We're left in verse 1 with this picture of weakness and humiliation, but then in verse 2, there's a royal announcement of a king that is coming. And there's quite the introduction to this king. We're learning three things here, and I want to go in reverse order of the text. The first thing is that he is from old, from ancient days. That's an odd way to talk about somebody being born, isn't it? I mean, how could someone be born that is old? I mean, this is not like a Benjamin Button situation here. I mean, how can someone who is being born also be referenced as existing previously? Well, on the surface, this makes no sense until we realize that this is one of the clearer promises, one of the clearer expectations we have in all the Bible of the incarnation of God himself. Remember, this is some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and there is a promise here that one will be born in Bethlehem who is from ancient of days. 
This word ancient, when it's used in the Old Testament, it's a reference often to God himself being everlasting, forever, always, and for all time. And this is what we remember at Christmas. God has not just sent a rescuer in his stead. He has not raised up someone from the earth to be a savior. No, the heart of the gospel, friends, and the message of Christmas is that God himself has come. The ruler that is to be born in Bethlehem is the infinite who has become an infant. He is the son of God born as the son of man. He is the maker becoming man. It's a wonderful promise and a glorious mystery that we consider at Christmas. He is from old, from ancient days. Secondly, we learn that he will serve God faithfully. It says, this ruler will come forth for me. Unlike the failures of so many of the kings of Judah and Israel who have come before, this ruler would serve for the Lord in faithfulness. He will execute the plans of the Lord as the other kings should have done, but so often failed to do. He will rule and reign in faithfulness for the Lord and his divine origins ensure it. And then thirdly, and most surprisingly, he will be born in Bethlehem. Now it's striking that when this ancient, divine, pre-existent, long-promised Messiah and King will show up on earth, he won't do so in Jerusalem. He won't do so in Rome. He does not go to the epicenters of religious or political power. Instead, he shows up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small, out-of-the-way, insignificant place on the world stage. I mean, in Joshua 15, the land is being distributed to all the different towns and villages and clans of Judah. 115 names are given of towns and villages. And guess what doesn't show up? Bethlehem. I mean, by the way, the Lord himself says that you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You know you're from a small town. If God is like, yeah, you're pretty tiny. This would be like today, uh, like the city of Webster. No offense to the fine people of Webster. You guys know where Webster is? Uh, If you don't, if you're you're new to Florida, maybe you're part of the people that have moved here in the last couple of years, welcome. If you want to drive north in Florida, like let's say you want to go to the promised land of Tallahassee, right? You don't want to go to Gainesville. There's no reason to stop there. You want to keep going, right? Uh, When you're on this road, if you go north Lakeland, you hit this road called the Green Swamp. That's the most Florida thing ever, by the way, okay? If you've got stereotypes, we are fulfilling them. All right, you get on the Green Swamp and you head north and Webster is the speed trap right in the middle, right? It's where it goes from 55, even though you're going 80, down to 30. Pro tip, slow down, okay? Webster makes a lot of money off of you speeding through their town. Uh, There is allegedly a flea market there. That's the only sign I recognize when I go through it, right? There's a school and then there's a flea market. Uh, According to uh, the website, I looked at their website this week, uh, the town's motto is rustic, rural, and real, (laughs) which is awesome. And for those of you who know Webster, I mean, that's an accurate description, okay? That's the kind of place that Bethlehem was, where this ancient ruler was to be born. Now, Bethlehem was known for one significant thing. It was the hometown of King David. That's a big deal, of course, but David's reign and his fame very quickly centers to Jerusalem, not on Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not caught up in some kind of massive boom because of David. It was about five miles south of Jerusalem, completely overshadowed by the city. But yet, God promises that that quiet out of the way, humble place 
will change the course of human history. Now let's pause for a moment and ask the question, why? Why would God choose the little town of Bethlehem to serve as the birthplace of the king? Why not choose Jerusalem or another royal city? Why go to a place that is just so obscure? Well, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that the pattern of God over and over again is to choose the humble place. Over and over again, God chooses Bethlehem. He shows himself to be one who operates exactly the opposite of how this world operates and how you and I would choose to do things. I mean, let's just zoom out for a minute. Think about the story of the Bible. In Genesis, God over and over again chooses not the oldest, but the younger son to fulfill his promises, going against the cultural expectation. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. Then God chooses not the mighty nations of the Old Testament, of which there were plenty to be his people, but the small, insignificant Israelites. Deuteronomy 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. God chooses not King Saul, who if you're reading along in our community Bible reading, we saw was tall, handsome, and wealthy. But instead he chooses David, who is the youngest son of Jesse. And by the way, wasn't even there for the draft because, well, it's not going to be David. God chooses David. He chooses Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, Gentile women to be in the lineage of this promised ruler. He chooses shepherds, not Sadducees, the Magi, not Pharisees, and Mary and Joseph, not Roman royalty, to announce and bring about the birth of this promised ruler. Do you get the picture? God always chooses Bethlehem. And why does he do that? First Corinthians tells us that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why Bethlehem? So that our confidence and our boasting might not be in man or ourselves or the things of this world, but in the glory and the power and the mercy of God alone. Promised ruler is coming through Bethlehem. Secondly, let's talk about a tale of two kings. If you've uh, got a Bible, I want you to flip over to Matthew 2 or scroll there. Keep your finger in Micah. To appreciate this further, I want to uh, juxtapose two rulers because here's the thing about Bethlehem. This prophecy about this tiny little city or village comes into fulfillment and into the crosshairs of biblical focus in Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced to another ruler. Chapter 2 of Matthew begins like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. 
Matthew tells us that a group of wise men from the east show up in Jerusalem. Now, from what we can gather historically, by the way, these wise men, these magi, were a sort of sages or magicians who had a special interest in astronomy. The picture here is pagan Gentile stargazers who show up in Jerusalem and they ask, where is the king of the Jews? Now, of course, by the way, they assume it's Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. And the problem is that they are talking to the king of the Jews, or at least the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. And this sets up a sharp contrast I want us to explore for just a minute. I want us to contrast King Herod and King Jesus. Here's some background on Herod. He was placed over Judea as a tetrarch by the Romans around 40 B.C. And Herod had big aspirations for himself. He had big political dreams. He wanted to be in a position of glory and power and might. So even though he's sort of a puppet figure for Rome, he grasps hold of that. His reign is marked by a grabbing for power at all costs. And this made him extremely cruel and oppressive. When he came into power, he killed the entire previous regime. And he forced the people to call him King of the Jews, even though he's a tetrarch of Rome. He's known as history as Herod the Great, primarily because of his massive, impressive building projects, which he accomplished through heavy taxation and taking advantage of the people. But most notably, he renovates the temple in Jerusalem to this massive, beautiful thing. And in many ways, Herod even outdid the Romans with his buildings. He built seven palace complexes to himself, and every one of them was larger than what the Caesars had in Rome. Later in his rule, he became extremely paranoid. He perpetually thought that people were plotting for his life. This led him to execute his favorite wife, he had ten wives, execute his favorite wife over some jealousy, and three of his sons he thought were going to usurp his rule. When Herod himself was near death, he reportedly left orders that a bunch of Jewish noblemen should be executed when he dies. So that way, the nation would be a mourning and not celebration. Luckily, that order was not carried out. And then finally, he made a burial site for himself on a giant man-made mountain so that it was unavoidable to see it, and he would never really disappear even when he was gone. Do you get the picture of King Herod? Herod channeled all the world's power and strategies to promote his own glory. And these two kings, King Herod and King Jesus, they come into contact in a horrific way when Herod sets his sights on all places, Bethlehem. Once he learns where the true king of the Jews is to be born, a king that was no doubt a threat to his way of life and his power and his glory, he responds in fury, Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. That's King Herod, wholly consistent from what we know about him. And King Herod is one of just many, many, many evil tyrant rulers throughout history who grasp for power and will do whatever is necessary to get it and to keep it. That's one king. So what about the other king? What about King Jesus? Let's go back to Matthew 5. Look at verses 3 and 4. Therefore, 
he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Micah says there's some more bad news first. Before this ruler comes, God is going to give up his people, a promise of a looming exile that will ultimately be carried out by Babylon. And the labor pains talked about here is likely a symbolic reference, not to Mary, but to Jerusalem, to the daughter of Zion, as the prophets call Jerusalem, who has been left desolate. But this will not be permanent. There is a promise that things will change. When the labor pains are over, this ruler will come, and the picture here of this king is one who rules not with an iron fist, but with a shepherd's staff. He will stand, Micah says, a proactive stance rather than sitting back, ready to jump in and serve and sitting in comfort away from the battle. He will stand and he will shepherd his flock. Let's think about that imagery of shepherding for a moment. Shepherds have to lead with both toughness and tenderness. I mean, first, shepherds have to be tough. I mean, a flock of sheep is not exactly a rule by democracy. The shepherd is in charge. The sheep don't all get one vote about where they're going. The shepherd tells them where they're going. He has to lead them properly so they can survive and thrive. And the shepherd has to be tough to protect the flock. They risk their own lives for wild animals and wolves and other things that would go after their flock. And if one goes astray... They're to go after it and bring it back into the fold. Shepherds must lead with toughness and with courage. But at the very same time, shepherds also have to be tender. Shepherds in this time would often name each of their sheep individually or have a call for each of their sheep. So even if there were a hundred of them in a pen, each sheep knew when the shepherd was talking to them. Good shepherds have to know the needs of their flock so they might lead them to green pastures and to nourishment and to safety. You see, shepherds also have to be tender. And brothers and sisters, this is how King Jesus leads. This is how King Jesus rules. He stands and shepherds his flock. John Calvin puts it poignantly. He says, Christ then rules not in this church as a dreaded tyrant who distresses his subjects with fear, but he is a shepherd who gently deals with the flock. Nothing, therefore, can exceed the kindness and the gentleness of Christ toward the faithful as he performs the office of a shepherd. Do you feel the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus? And here's what's crazy. Herod and Jesus had virtually the same agenda. Think about it. They were both ushering in a kingdom in which they were to be worshipped and glorified, but they couldn't have gone about their business any differently. Herod was willing to sacrifice others in order to benefit himself, while Jesus sacrifices himself to benefit others. Herod demands allegiance and uses violence to keep his subjects in line, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Herod asks others to sacrifice themselves and to serve him at the altar of his perceived greatness so that no one would miss it. 
And Jesus, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Herod builds giant shrines to himself so that no one could miss it even after he was gone. But Jesus comes and says that his kingdom is like a mustard seed that goes in the ground. It's like leaven that's mixed into the dough. You can't even see it, but yet one day it will grow and grow and grow into this unstoppable thing to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, do you see why Jesus was born in Bethlehem? The fact that the Messiah is born in this humble place is the perfect picture of his life and his ministry and his rule and his reign. His entire life was marked by humility. Isaiah prophesies he will be a man of sorrows, and the cradle in Bethlehem would ultimately lead to a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. The place where, paradoxically, the ultimate picture of humility is simultaneously a picture of glory. The cross is where we see that the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain, according to Revelation, who right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from there, what is he doing? He is shepherding his flock with toughness and tenderness in the strength of the Lord. That's King Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, are you safe in his fold? Are you in the flock of God, or are you wandering after a rival king in a competing kingdom? Listen, they might look different, they might talk different, it might be dressed up in different ways, but there are two competing kingdoms. There's the kingdom of King Jesus, and there's the kingdom of this world, with the epitome of that being King Herod, but any other kingdom that sets itself against the Lord and his anointed. And listen, Jesus, as the good shepherd, he welcomes the weak, not the strong. He welcomes the humble, not the impressive. He welcomes the lowly, not the haughty. And he welcomes sinners, not the self-righteous. Which kingdom are you in? Which flock do you belong to? The last thing we need to consider is the results of King Jesus' reign. Look at the last part of the the section here, the second half of verse 4. It says, And they, those in his flock, shall dwell secure, for now... He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Friends, this is where our eyes must be lifted beyond the first advent, the first coming of Christ, to his second coming and his promised return. Because you see, while Jesus was low-born and was brought forth into this world in obscurity in Bethlehem, and he is killed in scandal outside the gates of Jerusalem, ushering in a humble kingdom... This humility will not always be there because he is the king who has been resurrected in glory and promises to return to make all things new, establishing his throne on earth forever. While the kingdom of God has humble beginnings, it has a glorious worldwide reality coming. And that's what this text is promising. He will be great to the ends of the earth. That's ultimately what King Herod wanted, but he went about it the wrong way. And this reign will bring about two things for those who are citizens in this kingdom and members of the flock. Here's the two promises. The first is security. Those in the flock of the good shepherd 
will dwell secure, Micah says. As in, they will not be looking over their shoulder at threats that might be coming, nor will they be fearful of what the future holds. They will be safe in the flock of God. But brothers and sisters, notice how that security comes. They shall dwell secure. Why? For now he shall be great. The security that we experience only comes from him being great, not ourselves being great. When you yourself are great, your life will start to look like a mini version of King Herod. Paranoid, looking over your shoulder, uncertain about the future, grasping at all things. And King Jesus, the good shepherd, says, no, 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 lay that down. When you are small and I am great, guess what? You're secure. Let me put it this way. A mark of humility is the willingness to embrace obscurity. How's that concept strike you? It means being okay with small, ordinary faithfulness to King Jesus and not chasing after a glory that we can't handle and that won't deliver on its promises. Embracing obscurity means being, a fa- being okay with the fact that in about 100, 120 years, no one on earth may even know your name. And if they know your name, that's probably all they know about you. Embracing obscurity is, in, is a taking up the stance of John the Baptist who says in John 3, he must increase and I must decrease. It's the posture of Psalm 131, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Brothers and sisters, as we embrace our own obscurity and as we see the greatness and the bigness and the glory of God that has burst into this world and one day every square inch will be covered in it, we dwell secure. We can't find it anywhere else. The security comes from him being great and us being small but being welcomed into the flock. And the second promise here is one of peace. Anybody longing for peace in this Advent season? We all want things to be peaceful. We want them to be the way they're supposed to be. But the problem is that we look in all the wrong places to try to find peace. This time of year, we have to be careful not to get sucked into consumerism, thinking that just the next thing that I want will solve all the issues in my life. We have to be careful not to get sucked into just sentimentalism and the Christmas spirits, whatever that means. We sing songs about peace on earth and joy to the world, but we have to remember that those are in their fullness future promises. Yes, we proclaim that peace has come. Yes, we proclaim there is joy to come, but joy to the world, friends, is actually about the second coming. If you read the verses, you might not be feeling those things today. We are waiting for the verse, I know we skipped it this morning, the verse though that says, far as the curse is found. Listen, right now, you and I still feel the curse. That's why we're not at peace. You and I still feel the pain and the sting of loss. We still struggle with sin that clings so closely. And so let's not be sucked into some kind of mere sentimentalism that misses. There is a future hope that awaits us. And as we wait... In the time in between, this text reminds us that peace is not found in better circumstances. It's not found in the next best thing this world has to offer. It's not found in health or wealth or fame. It is found and only found in Christ. 
The text says, he shall be their peace. He. And he can be our peace as we look to the light of the world in the midst of the darkness around us and the darkness within us. And friends, that security and that peace is found by taking up the humble place in our own souls and in our own lives before the one whose greatness will extend to the ends of the earth and who rules with truth and with grace. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, Christ is always born in Bethlehem among the little ones. Big hearts never get Christ inside of them. Christ lives not in great hearts, but in little ones. Mighty and proud spirits never have Jesus Christ, for he comes in at low doors, and he will not come in at high ones. He who has a broken heart and a low spirit shall have the Savior, but none else. He is the Christ of the little ones. Friends, this morning, are you big of heart, or are you a little one? The invitation this morning is to find security and peace from the promised ruler who was born in obscurity, but one day will reign over all the earth. Listen, friends, let's be little ones. Christ is born in Bethlehem. He is born in the hearts of those who know they are small, and he is big. Let's take up that humble place together, shall we? And let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the promise that one day all the effects of the curse that we feel so strongly and that causes pain and suffering and hardship and inconvenience right now, they will be wiped away. We thank you for the promise that, Jesus, you will be great to the ends of the earth, that every single thing will see your greatness and your glory, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord. So, Lord, help us to be sustained as we await that glorious day in the future. And as we await that day, draw us to that humble place. Help us to not be big of hearts. Help us not to lift our heart up and to lift our eyes up to things that are too marvelous for us, but instead to take up the low place. And we thank you that you meet us there. Lord, may you draw us in your kindness to repent of our pride, to repent of our grasping for power, and instead to lay all of that down at the foot of the cross where you have showed us humility in its fullness, but also shown us your glory and your justice and your mercy and your righteousness. Help us land secure and in peace there, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.